0: You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life. your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Well, for those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And on behalf of our elder team, behalf of our staff, I want to uh, take a moment and just welcome you here. Now, we find ourselves in the second chapter of Lamentations during our Advent series. We're, we're trekking through the whole songbook of Lamentations. And if you have not already, I want to encourage you to, to listen to the introduction, if not the whole sermon from last week's, to give, to give yourself some context and some themes for this whole book um, that we'll be preaching through that I won't be able to address every single week. And so go back and and listen to uh, that introduction or the whole sermon uh, to give you guys some context. And with with that, I want to follow up on a few things from last week's sermon. And I would love to speak pastorally to two groups of people who might be listening in. That the first group I would like to speak to are, are those who when they hear these passages read and Lamentations, you, you might say to yourself, I've never experienced grief or sadness like this before. What, what, how should I respond to a book like this? Well, while these experiences might not be your experiences, there's a good chance that you know somebody who does experience grief, melancholy, and, and sorrow so this book, The Word of, of God, will, will teach you how to grieve with those who grieve and weep with those who weep. Ad- additionally, um, you might need this book someday. I and mean, chances are you will need this book someday. I mean, so often we come to God's Word like an ATM machine with our debit card of current experiences, Right? We, we expect to receive an encouraging word for today or some emotional boost for the day, but so often scripture reading, sitting underneath faithful preaching is, is not like that. It's more like a savings account where we put small deposits in day after day so that we might see a wealth of wisdom grow as well as currency of spirit build faithful responses when we need them the most. And so my encouragement to you is to lean in to this series, to gain wisdom. The second group of of people that I would like to speak to is is the group that as you were listening last week, you, you said to yourself, I experience pain often. I'm in the midst of suffering. Therefore, God must be judging me, and he must be angry with me. There must be some unrepentant sin in my life. Well, well that has the potentiality to, to be true. It's not always the case. I mean, often we find people suffering and in sorrow in Scripture that are incredibly faithful. I mean, you just think of the Apostle Paul's life as he's planting churches in the New Testament. Or have you considered God's servant Job in the Old Testament? He was a seemingly innocent sufferer that when he asked God for a reason for why he suffered, God didn't give him a reason. God didn't give him a reason for why he was in a heap of depression. No, what we find is Job lamenting and God commending him for his lament. See, on the one hand, in the book of Lamentations, we have people under conviction and sorrow for their sin. But in other parts of the Bible, we see laments where there's confusion surrounding the sorrow of a fallen world. But both, in both instances, in both types of lament, they lead to the same place. They lead to an admittance that we are in need of help. Both require surrender. Both require us to plead for relief and redemption. Both require immense trust that God is sovereign and good at the same time, regardless of our circumstances. And ultimately, we see this carry out in Christ Jesus, who is the true and better sufferer. He didn't just put on flesh, but he also put on our feelings of sorrow and sadness, and he suffered mercilessly at the hands of ruined sinners so that he might save those sinners and see them forgiven by God the Father. See, the context and the content of lament might be different, but the destination and the purpose of lament is the same. It's the same. It's that in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of our broken lives, we have the freedom to express our broken hearts to a God who wants to hear from us. And in that lament, it's going to develop an ever deepening trust in a God who is good and gracious. And today we are gonna hear about God's good and gracious character in his anger. See, Lamentations 2, what it does, it slow cooks a theme and places it at our table. But like my kids do with certain types of food, we like to pretend that this theme does not exist. Paul Tripp says this about Lamentations too. He says, I think every human being has told themselves the lie that Lamentations confronts. I know I have, and it's this. I can do what is wrong in the eyes of God and it will be okay. That sin doesn't have consequences. See, Lamentations 2 confronts us with the undeniable and horrendous consequence of acting like we know better than God. It confronts us with the consequence of rejecting God's law and attempting to write our own, thinking it will all turn out well. What Lamentations 2 will reveal is this, is that the anger of God is his loving response to our sin. Therefore, cry out to this God who also forgives. The anger of God is his loving response to our sin. Therefore, cry out to this God who also forgives. Well, We'll see this theme pick up in three movements. The first movement is the anger of God. The second movement is how the poet responds. And the third is why Lady Zion still weeps. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to keep them open to Lamentations 2, because I'll be calling out verses as we move through these 22 verses And so with that, y'all ready to dive in to this first point, what God has done. So it seemed like Lady Zion has sunken into a sobbing mess of silence while she's exiled in Babylon. Remember, Lady Zion is one of the characters we find in Lamentations. And we won't hear from her again until the final three stanzas of this funeral song. Now, remember, lamentations are acrostic, meaning they follow the Hebrew alphabet. And here, the poet from Aleph to, to Tav, there's the Hebrew alphabet of A and, and Z, he bookends this song with God's anger. Look what we read in verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And in fact, when you when you begin to to look at verses 1 through 10, you'll see the subject is Yahweh. The object is Jerusalem, Lady Zion, and his disposition towards her is anger, wrath. From heaven to earth, he's rent. He's rent the connection between him and Israel. The temple, gone. The walls destroyed. His mercy seat, gone. In fact, the poet tells us who destroyed it all. It was the right hand of God. You see, the right hand of God, it was power, power. The right hand of God is majesty, is authority, but for Israel, it's also a source of comfort, of protection, and refuge. And now in verses 3 and 4, this right hand no longer protects, but instead it pulls back the war bow, aiming it directly at Jerusalem. Verses 4 in Lamentations 2 reads this, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. Now, I'm, I'm sure all of us have experienced a good amount of unhealthy anger in our lives, from a, be it a, a temperamental mother, or an emotionally unhealthy father, or a narcissist for a boss, or if we are honest and self-aware enough, We've experienced our own short fuses that are lit by the most minuscule spark when things don't go our way. But godly anger, godly anger as an honest manifestation of real love, of offended righteousness, it's, it's rare among us. Godly anger, it's, it's like the loving care of a concerned mother who tells her son he cannot play outside in the snow anymore because he keeps going and playing in the slippery streets, even though she has warned him not to. That's what God's anger is like. It's loving concern. The Hebrews were fond of using God's anger to describe something that derives from this understanding, that God's anger was always sourced and evidenced from his concern for them. A theologian named Heschel writes this, God's concern is a prerequisite and source of his anger. It is because he cares for man that his anger may be kindled against man. And now since Lady Zion has treated God like an enemy, then God's anger will feel as if the Lord is like an enemy. Lamentations 2.5 says, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. The city, the city that has forsaken God has now become utterly forsaken by God. The walls that were meant to protect, look, look in Lamentations 2 with me. The walls to protect in verse 8, Torn down. Leaders to lead in verse 9, beaten down. Festivals and Sabbaths to feast and to rest, verse 6, stripped down. His temple and his sanctuary to find mercy in verse 7, sunk down. The elders and young women's voice in verse 10, volume turned down to zero, and their heads are bowed down to the ground. Down, down, down in God's anger. God has, with care and concern, toppled down these rich symbols of his covenantal love that his bride Israel has pawned off to foreign enemy lovers. This is the anger of God. And now we will hear how the poet responds. It's point two, how the poet responds. Look with me in verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. How does the poet respond to all of this calamity? It's with endless tears. His Stomach is in knots. The diarrhea, the vomiting, it won't stop. Why? It's because the streets are filled with infants and babies that are passed out. I mean, infant children, if they're not passed out on the streets, they're starving at their mother's breast. This is the result of warfare. Mothers can't even eat enough nutrients to produce enough food for their babies. And the poet is finally taking notice of Lady Zion. Remember, she practically lost her voice, screeching for somebody to take notice of her last week so that somebody might comfort her. In verse 13, the the poet sees Lady Zion, but doesn't know how to comfort her yet because he's never seen destruction quite like her destruction. I and mean, even though he doesn't know how to comfort, he does the only thing he's able to do. He identifies with her. In verse 11, he says, My people. He's weeping with the one that weeps, he's grieving with the one that grieves. He identifies with her pain. Is this how I respond when I see? other people grieving? Is this how you respond? Do we identify with them? And the poet gives yet more insight to how Lady Zion found herself in exile in Babylon. You see the kings and the the priests in verse 14, their responsibility was to teach the word of God, to expose it, and instead they hid the word. They did not expose sin, but instead they gave them false visions. These corrupt leaders misled the people out of repentance instead of into repentance. And the result we see in verse 15 is that the people lost their identity. They're no longer beautiful, they're no longer the joy of the earth, they're no longer God's daughter. See, what they built their identity on, power and prestige from other kings and other kingdoms, now gave them the identity of exiled slaves. And in all this, the poet reminds us in verse 17, that the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago, and he's thrown down without pity. God's done this with no pity. And earlier we read he did this without any mercy. What, is, what does this mean? I mean? You might be saying, I thought the Lord shows pity. He does. He might say, I, I thought the Lord is merciful. He is. See, on the one hand, he warned them. And God's warning is merciful. And he did what he said he would do. Deuteronomy 28, he warned that if you do not obey, curses and exile will come. God is being faithful to his word like he always has been. This warning he gave them back then and continue to give him is an act of grace. This is not volatile anger. This is not a random burst of anger that you might experience from an alcoholic father walking in the door where you don't know which version of dad you might encounter. You see, if the only thing that God wanted to do was judge people, he wouldn't warn them. That's why warning is mercy. And God does promise to take pity on his people. He does promise to be merciful to them, but it's on the foundation of sincere repentance. But from Israel and her leaders, that repentance never came. And why had they never repented? Because Lady Zion and her leaders thought that they can do whatever they wanted and there would be no consequences. And we've all believed this horrible lie we act like we know better. We act like we're smarter than God, that we could write better commands than Him. And some of us, we've, we've found ourselves in the horrendous predicament of suffering from the consequences of our own foolishness, where we feel like Israel's experience. We feel exiled. We feel alone. We feel cut off. But the poet here, Reminds Lady Zion and reminds us that exile is not the final word for her. It's not the final word for her or for us. No, we still have words to express to God. He pleads with her. He pleads with us to continue to cry out to God. Look at verse 19. The poet says to Lady Zion, Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. He's saying, if if you don't do it for yourself, do it for the next generation who faint for hunger at the head of every street. See, many of us refuse to cry out to God because we are fearful of what version of God we might encounter. We are tempted to believe the same lie that others have believed about God's anger in the past. See, back in, in Europe uh, during the time of World War I and World War II, there were some uh, pastors and theologians who liken God's anger to a live wire, saying, J- just don't go near it. There's a chance you might get electrocuted and and die. But C.S. Lewis, who is a um, Former atheist turned Christian philosopher, apologist, and theologian, he kindly pushed back on that view of thinking about God's anger like a live wire. He says, What do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of an angered majesty? Listen carefully to what he says next. You have shut us all up in despair. For the angry king can forgive and electricity can't. This is why the poet is pleading with Lady Zion, pleading with you and pleading with me, reminding us that the anger of God is his loving response to our sin. Therefore, cry out to this same God who also forgives. And in verse 20 to 22, she does. This is why Lady Zion weeps, point three. She listens to the comforting wisdom of the poet. She wails. She's honest. She does not hold back. She knows, Lamentations 1, that she's guilty of what has happened. But she's also asking do the consequences have to be this bad? Does it have to be this painful? Do the priests have to be killed? I mean, who else am I going to go to to hear from the word of the Lord? Do mothers have to starve only to resort to cannibalism, to eat their infants? What? Who else have you treated like this, Lord? And so she finishes the song in the same way the song started, with the anger of God. Final verse, 22, reads this, You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. I just wonder, when you are in the thick of conviction and in the torment of the consequence of writing your own laws, doing things your own way, are you this honest with your God? He can handle it. He wants it. And he's not surprised by it see, the experience of the consequence of our sin is the loving discipline and anger of God is an experience of grace. Why is it an experience of grace? Because it awakens us to the lie that we've been believing, that there's no consequence for our sin, there's no ramification for our sin. It's grace because it w- w- wakens us up that we actually don't know better, that we actually aren't smarter, that we actually don't write better laws than God. And in Lamentations 3.33, I'll just hint at it for a moment. None of God's afflictions come from his heart. He doesn't afflict from his heart. I mean, if any of you have children who disobey, maybe I'm the only one uh, who has children who disobey, that this is what it feels like when when I have to discipline them, when there has to be consequence for their disobedience and rebellion, I lovingly discipline them in, imperfectly. Imperfectly, I do it. But even when I do, it hurts my heart, I think, more than it actually hurts theirs. It doesn't give me joy to discipline my child. It doesn't give me happiness to see them in pain. But even in my imperfect anger and the imperfect consequences for my children's disobedience, do you know where the best place is for my child when they disobey? The best place for them is the experience of the consequence of their sin while simultaneously having direct access to me. The best place for my children is not to run away from my loving anger, but to run towards me. And this is what the poet is inviting Lady Zion to do, is to run towards the God who is angry, but is also gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. His anger is slow, doesn't last forever, but his mercy is abounding and lasts forever. And with her words and with her song, she is crying out to the only God who can comfort, She's crying out to the only king that can forgive. Exile is a gift to Israel because it's awakening her to what the priests and the leaders were supposed to expose, her sin. And when we grieve over our sin, the Apostle Paul tells us that godly grief leads to repentance. And where there's repentance, mercy and pity is found and this points to the greatest consequence to our rebellion. It's death, separation from God. It's exile. There have only ever been three exiles in the book of the and the whole of the Bible. First exile we see is in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sinned, and they were exiled from the garden. The second exile that we see is here in Lamentations, where they're exiled to Babylon because of their sin. But in each one of those exiles, there's a hint of hope. There's promise of a rescuer, promise of a redeemer. You see, in the third exile comes in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's hope and consolation. And he comes to identify with his people as the one who weeps over the city. As he rode on that donkey into the city and people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus is weeping. For he knows he must Enter spiritual exile to bring those home who are self-made exiles because of our sin. See, like Israel, Jesus, who is truly man, and truly God, was beaten. Was beaten down to the ground with whips and spat upon for all to see. Like Israel, Jesus was forced and driven outside of the city walls to be exiled to a mountain of death called Calvary. Like Israel, we can say of Jesus, was there any suffering such as Jesus's suffering? Like Israel, Jesus was mocked. We read in Mark 15 that when he was in the agony of suffering the consequence of my sin, yours, and people said to him, he can save himself. He can save others. Why can't he save himself? You who say you can rebuild the temple in three days after it's been torn down, why don't you get off that cross? Like Israel on the festival day of the Passover, there were terrors on every side of him, and the anger of the Lord was poured out on Jesus. The Lord's anger came down on Jesus, and he did not survive the horrors of the cross. He did not get off that cross, for he knew if he would have gotten off that cross, he wouldn't save us from the consequence of our sin, eternal. Exile in hell. Like Israel, Jesus experienced exile, spiritual exile from the Father on that cross. Jesus, the propitiation, the Lamb of God who absorbed the wrath and punishment and the anger of God was fully poured out on Jesus for what we deserve. You see, the right hand of God was pouring out punishment on Jesus So that same hand of God can offer for protection for those who run to him and repent and come to him and cry out to him see like my children the best place for them to be is in my presence the best place for us to be is run towards the God who is not only angry over our sin but offers forgiveness And the place where we run to is where wrath and mercy meet, where anger and grace collide. And it's there we stand forgiven at the cross of Jesus. See, it's when we trust in Christ's finished work, in his life, death, and resurrection, we will no longer be exiled from God, but we will be welcomed home. And so in light of this mercy, in light of this great mercy and forgiveness we have found, let us be a people who put to death the continuing nature of our sin and instead follow the Spirit. In light of that great mercy and forgiveness, we are able to weep over our sin, but also realize there is no one left to condemn us in light of that great mercy and forgiveness. We also remember there's no one, no one can drive us out of God's presence, for we are always his, and he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. And in light of that great mercy, when others need comforted, when they say to us, have you ever suffered this way? We can say no, but we know someone who has and his name is Jesus. Do you know him? And in light of this great mercy, when we continue to fall into the same sinful patterns, God is not surprised by it. In fact, he welcomes us to keep bringing our cries, bringing our convicted hearts and bringing our sorrow over the consequence and the ramification of our sin to him, to him so that we can stand forgiven at the cross of Jesus. Oh, my church family, I pray that you know that God's anger is his loving response to our foolishness, but he's also the same God who offers us forgiveness all because of Jesus. Let's be a people who cry out to him and invite others to cry out to them so he they might find comfort only in this God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask you to take pity on us, to have mercy on us. We often don't live in light.